Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Small Talk. My name is Teresa Shannon. I am a nurse education coordinator for the inpatient medicine program. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Kate Donovan, Denise Downey, Avi Gomez, and Kathy Kiley. Today, we're going to explore advocacy for children and adolescents who have been experiencing behavioral health crises with our guests, Erin Quinlan and Jennifer Slaybush. Welcome, Jennifer and Erin. Hi. Can you guys introduce yourselves a little bit more and tell us about your role on the behavioral health team? Sure. I'm Jennifer Slaybush. I am the senior behavior health counselor on the behavioral response team. I helped start the team with one psychiatric nurse a long, long time ago who came down from the inpatient unit. And now it's a big old team 24-7 with many, many clinicians that are counselors and nurses and behavior analysts. We operate in all areas except inpatient psych in the hospital. And I started out in the emergency department helping doing some of the uh, behavioral health interventions down there. Before that, I was in the inpatient psychiatry unit. So I'm Erin Quinlan. I'm a staff nurse three on the behavioral response team and the psychiatric nurse educator. Um, I joined the team in 2017 when there was about five of us. I've always been a psych nurse. I went back for nursing as my second degree. My first degree was still health science, but I love soccer. So I just always said I went to school for soccer and then I'd figure out my career. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so then I went back to nursing school. Um, I actually always give credit to my mom. She was always wanted to be a nurse. So she kind of was like, well, you should do nursing. Try it out. So I became a CNA and I was a sitter back in the day, sitting one to one for patients in nursing school. I really wasn't into the medical stuff. And I was really drawn into just talking to people. And in clinical, they'd be like, Erin, you need to get out of the room. There, you have to do your medications and your documentation. And I was like, I'm just trying to enjoy my conversation to, and getting to know my patients. So I knew from then that I really wanted to do behavioral health. So can you talk a little bit about the crisis? At the time of the beginning of BRT, um, we were getting some calls in the inpatient unit to come down and help out on the medical floors a little bit with some patients that were having some challenging behaviors or needed extra accommodations to make things more smooth and, and you know, better for their stay and more successful. But there were a few calls a week. Uh, and then it became more and more. And the one nurse who was doing it all by herself for three years finally got the approval to bring on some more people because then we had patients who were staying, waiting for psychiatric placement longer and longer and longer. Uh, and then we got into what is called boarding, which is being uh, slated for a higher level of psychiatric care, but that bed not being available at that time. And so kiddos are waiting in the hospital setting. And so now we have kids that are boarding for long periods of time. And as you might imagine, the longer you're kind of in the hospital, the more challenging that becomes and the more we really have to pay attention to, you know, how we're working with these kiddos and what the interventions are uh, and making sure that we're orienting them to their place and their schedule and their day and helping to really curb some different feelings of upset and potential escalation. Uh, and so that's why the team has grown to be so much, because over the past decade, we've seen an exponential increase uh, in the numbers of these patients that we have that we call boarders. So we have different people on shift that help with emergency response. 
Uh, and then we have people that can do a little bit more of that proactive work that we like to do to sort of avoid some of those emergent responses. And we like to do a little bit of pre-planning too for kiddos we know that are coming in for procedures, just so we can help them get into the building, be successful in their appointment, and then get back out successfully as well. I think it's also important to note or even to recognize that a lot of people think the behavioral health crisis existed because of COVID-19, because of course we saw a really great increase and influx in patients coming for psychiatric evaluation. However, a lot of people that weren't in that work field before, I think may not realize that this has been a developing crisis over the years that it did already exist. And it's unfortunate that COVID-19 occurred, but it actually brought a lot of focus onto behavioral health and identified a lot of gaps that were present that weren't being really recognized before. So I think that need really helped the growth of our department as well in really trying to support not only the patients, but the staff that now are having to change their whole kind of workforce and change their type of day-to-day tasks because now they're having patients that have behavioral health needs more frequently than before. Uh, It really helps for uh, telehealth forward. It had been a discussion for years and had just not gotten off the ground for lack of devoting resources to it because it was a really big lift. Uh, And now, thank goodness, it is a large part of our treatment with children and adolescents and adults in the mental health field. And it's really a much better fit for some people. And it creates this access that didn't exist before, a whole new vein of access. Uh, And it really is, you know, bringing people to treatment that previously could not do that and engage. And also for those that may have not had the access to transport to a provider before, um, we're lucky to live in Massachusetts. We have probably one of the best mental health care, which is still scary because mental health is still not where it needs to be. But, you know, we're working towards it. I always uh, feel for those people that are in more remote areas and not having that quick access to providers. So that did allow them to at least be able to have more access and at least be seen through technology to be able to get what their needs met and evaluations met. I think it's interesting. You brought up a great point about Massachusetts. Our resources are actually ahead of other areas of the country. I know both of you travel and have presented across the country. Can you speak about this crisis nationally and any triggers that you might have insight into that seems to have spurred the issue? We get that question a lot about the different things that play into the burgeoning uh, boarding crisis and mental health crisis. And it's really like this constellation of things. There aren't one or two pieces to the picture a lot of upset and a lot of stress occurs for the children and adolescents that we see um, because of misuse of different things like social media and maybe bullying that occurs through social media. And there's also this fear of being left out of things. Um, And there's also sort of the keyboard warrior piece of it too. People are more comfortable saying mean things behind a screen than they are in person. And there's a lot of different facets to that. So when people say social media is bad, it's the problem. It's not the problem. It's the different ways in which it's being misused that are the problem. Kids need an escape from their day too. And, you know, playing Candy Crush for a little bit is not the end of the world. (laughs) But it's the way that we use it, right? And the way that we misuse it. Uh, And so there are a lot of social pressures for kids and adolescents. And that just kind of gets highlighted through there sometimes too. 
there are also different geographic location things at play too because as Aaron was saying earlier we live in a place where we are very fortunate to have a lot of resources and there are a lot of places across the nation that have less resources it's hard to see sometimes what those kids have to go through to get some care people are looking to each other to see what they're doing and we've spent a lot of time on calls with other hospitals other units you know, again, across the nation to see what they're doing in terms of environmental safety, in terms of observation for patients that may be at risk, uh, in terms of different ways to help keep our staff safe in the ways of personal protective equipment. And so we really like to see what other places are doing for those things uh, and what could possibly be feasible in our areas. And when we do speak to people in different areas, they really want to know what we're doing. And so It's a really, really valuable thing to be able to go to. For example, our last thing we presented at was APNA, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. Um, And we were in California in October for that, where we presented and won a research award, which was nice, (laughs) Uh, but got to speak to so many different people that had so many different focuses. They really wanted to know what they could do on a budget, what they could do with no budget. What they could do, you know, sort of on the fly to help, you know, modify some of these things and improve care. And I think one thing that was really a challenge for every area geographically was the shortage in providers or the interest to go into this field. Just to give you an example, this was back in 2013. So you're even talking before all of this. Um, when I graduated nursing school, there was 90 people in my class and only two of us went into psychiatry. And one went into adults and one went into pediatrics. And I always think that's so important to like share because a lot of people don't realize that this isn't a field that people really choose to go in a lot of times. There's a lot of, there's minimal people that really want to work with behavioral health because it is not an easy area. It's a crisis area. It's kind of like the ICU. Not every nurse wants to be an ICU nurse because it's crisis or an ED nurse. It's crisis and it can be challenging work. But with already the growing nursing shortage in general and from COVID as well, it's scary because there's a lot of nurses are either leaving the profession or we're having challenges getting interest into the profession. And that's scary for behavioral health because we already have that shortage existed. So that can definitely be something that every area geographically is facing. Erin, what do you think would help people get interested in behavioral health or psychiatric nursing? What is it that would draw them in, in your opinion? I think a lot of education needs to go into it. I remember I just, I wanted to do that. So I already had that in my mindset that I was going into be a psych nurse. But when I went into school, I was kind of surprised that we only received, I was an accelerated program, but still we only received so many weeks of behavioral health education. It really wasn't a focus. So I think my biggest goal is to really get education awareness more into schools and out into the community and also understand the growth that is needed in this profession because you don't have to just be a staff floor psych nurse. There's so many gaps in our care for behavioral health that positions need to be developed. There needs to be growth. We need that. So I think it's important to share that with people that are interested in behavioral health so that they know that there is opportunity for a career in that. I think that's a really, really important point because we're still seeing nurses that are coming in to shadow in the hospital and they're like, oh, this is so interesting. And they're fully not aware that this is the reality of nursing these days in the hospital setting. 
And so I think that education in school is something that has to be addressed in a larger way. We're thankful that nurses are coming in and wanting to shadow our team. We're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is so great. Let us show you all the things. But it's tough. It's really tough. And I think that it starts with awareness because how could any of those nurses know that they would be interested in behavioral health if they're not even learning it? And then when they hear about the scary things or the fearful things, they may not hear about the good stories and how powerful this type of work can really be. And you can really make a difference, even though it may not be in medical, you could maybe you break a bone, you get to see a result because you help fix it. And behavioral health, it takes a long time for your brain to heal and get through your traumas or learn how to manage your um, feelings or behaviors. And so you don't always see these instant results and gratification that you're helping somebody, but it's actually important to recognize the small things that you're making actually a huge difference in their life for the long run, even though it doesn't feel like it. And that reminds me of what we tell all of our nurses too, that healthcare is behavioral healthcare. You're doing it every day, whether you recognize it or not, you are. And don't doubt yourself. Showing up in that patient's room, ready to engage with them is massive. Not being afraid to talk to a kid just because you're not maybe feeling like you have all of the answers or you're not the expert on their diagnosis, that's massive. You're there to take care of them, and that's what they need. Uh, and so we really try to remind all of our nurses that they're doing all of that every single day. You know, many times when, let's say, pediatric patients have um, health-related experiences as they're growing up, that serves as an incentive for them to want to enter that profession. But I often wonder with young persons who have had mental health concerns through their lifetime, how do you help some a young person who's had the experience but wants to become a helper enter that field without letting those past experiences sort of influence the work they, they would do in the future? People that want to maybe pursue uh, a career in behavioral health that have had their own histories of uh, mental health struggles and treatments and things like that, it requires a lot of self-investigation and reflection, and it requires a lot of support to do that. Um, finding a mentor or a person that knows the field, at least, uh, that you really trust and can have those very open conversations with is critical because while a lot of people that are in behavioral health have many different kinds of mental health struggles of their own, it has to be in a way that you are, are managing that for yourself so that you can show up for others. We always talk about psych boundaries versus medical boundaries. They are different. Uh, and so, you know, in medicine, for example, if you have a small child who is struggling, but then they decide they really need a hug, totally fine. That's appropriate. It's probably developmentally appropriate at that age too. And we think three times before about doing that. You know, we do high fives, fist bumps. We'll try and suggest a different form of, you know, connection there. Uh, and so that's just one example. But so there are many different things um, that can also be perceived very differently by the patients that you're treating. And that's the bigger point, right? We have to make sure that what we're doing is going to be appropriate boundaries-wise and maintain that therapeutic relationship without overstepping. I think it's always important, too, to, to be honest and transparent and ask if they feel comfortable with this type of work, restraints, if they see these things, because we also want to make sure their mental health is okay and that our job is stressful, but we also need to make sure that we're able to support them if they're going to be in situations that may 
have something that may trigger something else. I always even tell everybody, everybody has feelings and emotions. So you're lying if someone says they don't have anxiety or depression or they're getting angry or anxious. Everybody has feelings and emotions and behaviors, but it's about how we manage them. And so it's important that when we are hiring people into this field, we have to just be honest. If this is something that they are able to um, manage day to day, because it is a lot of heavy work and a lot of heavy emotions and feelings, and we have to protect ourselves so we don't put ourselves in a situation that's going to mentally decline our, our own health. Do these patients ever teach you guys something in return? I know you say, you know, you always think about the interventions that you're providing. I'm just curious, do you learn from your patients as well? And can oh, you give an example? <laughs> I have like one example. Um, everybody is so quick to just tell children, all right, come on, let's go. We're going to go to the doctor's appointments. Like not really thinking what they're perceiving and how they're actually feeling. Um, for example, I had responded to a patient, a little child who was pulled from school by their parents to go to a doctor's appointment and just was upset, didn't want to go in. It was some neuropsych testing, didn't want to go into the building, was inside, um, was just kind of trying to get into the elevator and leave the building, didn't want to be there. When I walked over, I was like, has anybody asked why he doesn't want to come? Is he upset? And everybody's like, no, we're just trying to get him to go in. And so when I actually asked him, he, he told me that, um, you know, I actually, this is my first time I got to create a game for gym class and it was going to be my time to present my game and I'm not going to be there to play. And so right there, like, I am feeling so much. Imagine being this little child, you're all excited. He was clearly kind of like a perfectionist, put a lot of hard work into developing it, was really excited to share it. And I think he taught me a lesson that even though that these are little, little children, there's, if you just talk to them and ask them, they're actually going to be able to tell you what's going on. And instead of having an escalation, just having that one-on-one -on -one transparent conversation with them, you may be able to get to an answer and actually be able to de-escalate them instead of causing a restraint or... And validate their feelings, right? You can say, that stinks. That's disgusting. That stinks. Be mad too. And I think we said that. And he actually ended up playing a game with me and started telling me about his game. So he at least got to play it with somebody. Kids teach you every day the importance of just really being patient and listening to people and not just like judging and having this biased, quick response, really being non-judgmental and open. Our world is so quick to say no to everything. It's just an automatic response. And I think that's one of the things we always teach people in like our trainings where you're like, avoid the word no. And everybody looks at us with like, we have 10 heads. So we're like, we know it's hard, but there are hundreds of ways without using the word no. And sometimes... If kids have been struggling with behaviors, they're hearing that nonstop from adults in their world, right? And so either it's a trigger word and then we're going to have escalation immediately, or they become totally desensitized to it and they're not hearing your voice. <laughs> so it's really important to think about our language because uh, words matter in so many different ways. That is one of the big ones because we can totally avoid some upset if we just think about a different ways to say no and then also present some choices because maybe they don't even know what their choices are. I think it's interesting that you brought up how there's such a great need for more people to go into behavioral health. 
I'm just curious, as you mentioned, with the increase in borders that we're seeing in both areas, my area, inpatient world, as well as in the emergency department, both Kathy and Denise can speak to that. Uh, you have a, a set of nurses who came out of school that wanted to be medical nurses or emergency room nurses, and now they're faced with learning behavioral health to be partial psych nurses. Can you speak to a little bit about what's being done to support the frontline staff and caring for these patients? Yeah, I think education is the biggest thing. Jen and I are very passionate about this, especially working in the non-psych areas as psych content experts. We really want to help support the staff that are caring for these patients. We want to give them the skills to be able to be succeed and feel empowered to do their job and feel that they're doing it correctly. And a lot of education lacks there in the non-psych setting for nurses. So one of the things Jen and I started doing is providing education on behavioral health as a whole at our hospital, and then also kind of breaking it down for like shift daily tasks and also how to uh, best accommodate and support their patients when they're escalated or having challenging behaviors. So we started doing education with our new transitional nursing program. Um, we also started an orientation program for our new constant observers that we are implementing into our hospital. And we also provide a lot of education. We're trying to get more into the simulation and open peds. We have been lucky to also work with Kate Donovan on a few projects to help us with room safety and getting our uh, room safety training module up as well. We also do some stuff for services specifically. So we go and speak to all of the new hire fellows, the residents, social work. We like to get people when they're coming in. So we like to give them a little preface of, you know, what is behavioral health at Boston Children's Hospital? What are all the different pieces of it? And who does what pieces? Well, which pieces? Because that is also different, right? There are different parts and different arms to the the different services. So it can get confusing. So I think it's helpful to have a little bit of an overview uh, at the start. Um, mm -hmm. And then they move through it. And Sometimes people from those services shadow us, which is probably very eye-opening for them. <laughs> uh, and yeah, we like to do uh, things whenever units call us. We have like a power form that people can submit if they're asking for something specific. Uh, for example, we're going to a unit next week and we did last week uh, and they were two very different requests. You know, one was very specific about I'm in a room and there's some escalation for a patient that just popped into our calendar. So we have no planning. What do I do? <laughs> And so really just a walkthrough of that in an ambulatory setting. Uh, and then the other one is more that overview of psychiatry and behavioral health and in the inpatient medicine world. How can we get some people some of the more in-depth education about the services that are uh, and the support services that are available to them? So we love to do that stuff. The web page, too, oh, resources, which is really helpful. And we've been trying to really advocate for that use because there's a lot of resources that we do utilize in those videos that we were talking about that we've created or others have uh, worked on. We really make sure we add them to the webpage so they're easily available. Um, it's called the Behavior Support webpage. And that is a link to all things behavioral health. So not just BRT, but also the psychiatry pieces and things like that. Safety. Lots of nursing facing things because we're trying to sort of see what people need more readily available to them. Hyperlinks are great because they're linked right to the objects and right to the policies and pages. So we don't have to worry about updates. Everything is accurate as long as the hyperlinks work. 
And there are lots of different education initiatives as well that are more focused. Um, we were talking recently about one of the very niche education things that we used to do in person, which is um, a tutorial on how to do mouth checks. Um, and in a pediatric hospital, that's something that we really feel strongly people should know because these are little kids and they're not always the best at taking their medicine. And sometimes, you know, they get thrown out or sometimes in the in the more concerning cases, they're being hidden away and maybe collected. So we were talking about doing some more mouth check stuff and things like that that are more bedside oriented because uh, I think those are things people just tend to not think about necessarily. I think it's been nice because we've been really getting more opportunities. Um, we've always worked with CEI and the nurse educators, but I think over the past three years, we really have been more involved with those departments and those leaders and really building the behavioral health education that we really have seeked to develop for years. And it's an identified gap that needs it. So it's been great to work alongside a lot of other people, too. I can speak to it just from our experience as well. It's been totally amazing. And just to see, even in the past years on our unit, we have a cohort of patients, just like in the ED, how it, education has really served to be the best advocate for our patients that are admitted and boarding on our units. I noticed uh, one of our behavioral health team colleagues had a one of those rubber wrist things on and it said, stop the stigma. And I loved it. Uh, Those were from our Mental Health Awareness Day table. We have many more if you'd like a bunch. Uh, we loved working with the cohort. As Teresa mentioned, there is a cohort on her unit on Nine East, and um, we have some staff from our team that are over there every shift to be more readily available to those patients that need more attention uh, and may have more acute or unsafe behaviors. Uh, and so the opportunities for education with the medical staff there are wide and great. And I think it's really helped, hopefully, um, bedside staff feel more empowered to do the things that they maybe didn't feel so empowered to do before. Also, it has helped illustrate things that they can do that maybe they thought were, you know, not within their wheelhouse or scope. And they're like, oh, I can do that. And we're like, yeah, mm -hmm. let's go. We love the cohort, too. I feel like it's a good platform for others, uh, other departments or other units to then adopt if they're having this um, increase borders on their units and ha and struggling, having these challenges on how, how to manage that, that care in addition to the medical care that's very acute as well. And I think the work we've all done on the 90s cohort together as Dave Rahalt and from the medical nursing piece has really created a great platform for success for other areas. And I'm excited to see it hopefully adopt to other areas. So be nice. Yeah, I think it's a great model that other uh, hospitals, I'm not sure what they're doing, but I know for us it was pretty novel. And at first, I would say not as well received. I think I had the aha moment. We had a nurse that left our unit to try out working on one of our clinics and ended up coming back a year later. And she was really a great benchmark. She came back, she said, I can't believe how much things have morphed here. She's been in the charge role and should say, you know, a year ago when you'd get admission and there was a behavioral health patient, people would groan and be like, ah, now it's just natural. No big deal. The comfort level has definitely dramatically changed right from admission. The anxiety is not there for the nursing staff. They know their resources. They know where to look. They've had a lot of education that wasn't on our, you know, in our wheelhouse before. Um, even changing our orientation. We're just saying we're working on our competency-based orientation and realizing we have to totally change it this year and expand it. And I can toss this over to Kathy and Denise because you, I think all the work you've done down there advocating for behavioral health patients has been pretty amazing with your behavioral health bundle. Absolutely. 
I was just going to say, talking about, you know, giving pathways and meaning to different interventions, that's something that started with one or two pieces and has morphed into an entire behavioral health pathway for patients. So you guys can certainly speak to how it is now, but, you know, there's so much rapport building and really thoughtful care planning that goes into it, that it really sets our patients up for success that if we know they're going to be here for a little while. And, you know, all of this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that this behavioral health crisis didn't just happen overnight. It's been building for a number of years. And recognizing that in the emergency department, we were able to get a great group of people together and build this standardized care bundle that we utilize for getting all of those patients uh, settled when they come into the emergency department. And... Jen was part of that. Uh, she was on one of our work groups and, and helped build one of the tools that we use. But I think we are also able to pull a lot of the great features of care that we see throughout the organization. So, you know, I'll use the coping tool as an example. We want to engage with our kids and and have them tell us what it looks like. What am I going to see when you're starting to get upset? And what can I do to help you? Uh, when that's happening. And that was something that we adapted from the autism group. They have a much more extensive tool that they use for that patient population. But because we see a lot of those neurodiverse kids here too, that was a piece of the puzzle to really make comprehensive and cohesive. So, you know, it's always a work in progress. We have been able to share a lot of that with some of our other colleagues in the hospital and still as new people are onboarding to Children's Hospital, you know, I've been able to go up and collaborate with the clinical coordinator on one of the floors upstairs. We would not have the success that we do without all of the players. So as they say, it takes a village, right? It truly, truly is. But having those pathways, I think, really helps nurses to feel more secure in doing those things. And especially in an environment that is so the pace is different. The pace is so much faster, right? And so everyone's like, how do you keep everyone on the same page with all of the different things that change all the time? Thus, interdisciplinary rounds was born, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's you know, you've got to make time for it. But uh, everyone gets to check in, hear the same information and move forward with the same plan, which I think is just so critical. Consistency is really, really important in behavioral health. For sure. It's interesting to listen to the story about what's been done locally, you know, just in our facility alone. Can you speak a little bit to what's going on on a national level for advocacy? Nationally, it is known that this boarding crisis is occurring. It is not just a Massachusetts problem. Um, and there are organizations, sorry, such as, you know, APNA that are working with different um, hospitals and care settings and things like that to move things forward. It is also recognized, though, by the Surgeon General. There are things that people are noticing, and I am not clear on any concrete national plans that are that all-encompassing that are moving us forward, but I do know that they are conversations. As far as the state goes, in Massachusetts, there was the ABC Act, which was most recently passed, and that was really helpful for access for our patients to behavioral health care. This is something that has many different parts to it, but in a nutshell, it 
touches on creating clearer pathways for people to reach out to a provider and get an appointment, get an initial intake appointment, to get a therapist, right? Uh, and to also address insurance companies and what they're all offering that might be slightly different and to get them to be more unified and to offer more of those supports in the community. And then additionally, there's a part that talks about um, workforce development uh, and how to get more nurses and skilled expertise and behavioral health clinicians into the community and also at the bedside. So all of those things are incredibly helpful, and we like to definitely make sure that our points of view from Boston Children's Hospital are really heard, um, because sometimes I think people are aware of the problem, but not aware of the depth and breadth of the problem and sort of all of the different pieces that it touches on. So Erin and another person on our team, Melissa Farinella, and I for a couple of years have been participating in um, rounds at the state house with our policymakers and also with residents from area hospitals that come to learn more about the language that they can use to help advocate and share about what they're seeing in their areas as well. That I think has been really helpful as well, because again, I think a lot of people, our policymakers included, are aware that this is happening, but not to the, the extent uh, that it is affecting all of these different pieces of care. Uh, and so it's really helpful for them. And they're really grateful to hear different perspectives um, about what we're actually seeing in our institutions. So that's one thing that's been really yeah. present lately, I would say. There's been a lot of like state to state initiatives as well in gaining that workforce uh, development and really trying to build more interest in going into this field. As we said, it's a field that's not too popular of a choice once you get out of college to come to. But I think specifically for Massachusetts, we have actually, I guess Jen can speak more on it because she does a, a lot more work in this area. But um, we work with the William James College in helping that growing our behavioral health patient observer workforce. Part of that is money coming from the state to help institutions formulate different ways to get people that are interested in the field, but maybe just don't know how to get into it. Or maybe just didn't have that formal education to be able to get into it. Uh, and so what we're doing right now is um, we're currently on cohort number two of uh, some texts that have been brought in by our wonderful workforce development team that's working with William James College. Uh, and they're getting formal education from the college, which is phenomenal. And then they're also getting the on-site training period with some of our behavioral health areas so that they can actually see what it's like, right? And all the different kinds of roles. So really that one-to-one -one patient observer also uh, responding and doing some de-escalation uh, and redirection, and then also working on our inpatient areas as well. So they're really getting the full scope of training and uh, exposure. Uh, and at the end of their training period, if they've done well and fulfilled all of their competencies and they graduate, which is always fun, uh, then they have the opportunity to be hired uh, into our institution, which is fabulous. And then we also have created just the position in itself uh, entirely new uh, as an addition to the behavioral health workforce at Boston Children's Hospital. And that's another thing Erin and I have been working on extensively for the last few months. Uh, and so that is up and running now, which is also great because we have about 10 people on boarded. 
more people starting next week. That's really nice because it's been a huge development in behavioral health education that will eventually be across the board. And so it was an opportunity to get that started. And that's going really well, too. So it's a twofer. We get to get some new people in, which is wonderful because they're so interested and we get to train them and they get to see all of the great things and have a totally new opportunity to either change their career or start a career. I also know that WHO, the World Health Organization, does have a large focus on mental health more recently, of course. And But I do know one of the goals was to really incorporate more integrative uh, therapy in, into CARES and have more focus on mental health initiatives to really try to get equal access um, throughout the nation for these services and have that more available. So that is definitely something that aligns with our work as well. And we really are lucky to live where we live to have the access that we do already have, even though it may seem limited to us. But I think if people looked at other areas, even at other areas of our nation, they would really understand how uh, lucky we are to live in Massachusetts. Speaking of integrative therapies, uh, that actually aligns really well with one of the many projects that and I have going at the moment, which is really exciting. Uh, it's patient-focused integrative therapy offerings through our team, the behavior response team. Currently, we have four staff, aside from the both of us, uh, that are Reiki trained uh, and will offer Reiki to our patients that we're following that are boarding for a higher level of psychiatric care. Before, Erin and I did offer Reiki um, through the Hale Center, which was wonderful, mm -hmm. uh, and realized that some of our patients that have more um, behavioral health needs may be more challenging for those clinicians to visit regularly. And as our team is interacting with them every day, they were wanting to do some more therapeutic things like that. So what's wonderful is two of them are night staff and two of them are day staff. So um, whenever they're on, nurses are calling them and asking on behalf of their patients or they're contacting the bedside nurse if they think that a patient might be a good candidate and might be interested and then doing that. And it's really nice to have some people at night to be able to do that too, because it's really helpful for our, our patients that have a really hard time settling. And so developing sort of good sleep hygiene uh, is challenging. And sometimes if nothing else is really working in the middle of the night, we can try some Reiki and that's, uh, it's really helpful for facilitating relaxation as well. So sometimes that can work like a charm. And then obviously when we're doing breathwork techniques, that's also teaching coping skills. It's, uh, it's really, really great to be able to do that now that we have such a big team to get some people to be able to do some more therapeutic cares. It's nice to see integrative therapies really coming into the biomedicine world. A lot of people are were unfamiliar or maybe had a biased feeling towards it. There's been a lot of feelings and thoughts towards integrative therapies, but I believe more recently and over the past few years, there's been more of an interest, especially with everybody's mental health taking a toll with COVID. Whether you already had existing psychiatric diagnoses or not, everybody was affected mentally. And I think people were looking for ways to really help process what they went through and also be able to support their family members and also still do the jobs that they have to do. And I think nurses in general, um, had a really hard time during COVID, of course. Um, we were going to work every day and we were faced with a lot of different challenges. It's really nice to see people really take integrative therapy seriously and be, at least be open to it. I always say, if, you know, it's not your jam, that's fine. You don't want to, you don't have to do it. You don't have to love it. 
Um, I never want to push it on anybody, but I always tell people it's important to just try and then you never have to do it again if it's not for you. But if you aren't open to it, just like anything, you're not going to get anything out of it. Like that desire to want to experience it, that's when you're going to have the best outcomes. So it's nice to be able to provide that and also train other staff that are interested in this type of work to really bring it as an alternative and healing practice while patients are boarding for site placement because they don't really receive too much therapeutic interventions that we do as best as we can, all of us. But um, when it comes down to it, they're waiting for appropriate placement for them. As much as they're getting best care that we can provide them, they're also not in the environment that they need to be in to be able to really process feelings and emotions. So at least this is a technique that can allow them to help feel calm and safe and then also build that skill while they're waiting for the appropriate environment to really get into that deep-rooted work that may need to be processed. Wow, that really sounds amazing. I think people maybe underestimate the number of patients who may be boarding for a higher level of psychiatric care that might be interested in these things. And I think that's the sort of the first thought. And, you know, we go see kids that are sad or anxious or, you know, had been suicidal or maybe are and, you know, processing all of, like Erin said, these heavy emotions. And even some of our patients who have had psychosis Mm -hmm. have been really interested uh, in Reiki and look forward to it, do very well with it. And so it's really almost like giving them permission to lie down and follow directions without having any demands placed on them. Do you know what I mean? And so in that way, we're able to like make a little bit of progress in the relaxation and de-escalation realm. So it's always surprising to me, yeah, which patients really are are interested and really ask for it repeatedly. Yeah. That's awesome. I'd be really curious to see if you see a decrease in the PRN or the as-needed medications that kids are getting after they've had it. Research with Reiki specifically about pain uh, and reducing medications. Uh, And a lot of that research comes from um, oncology Mm -hmm. and surgical floors. Erin and I recently did a research project um, with the EBP group on Reiki uh, and staff stress. And so we were looking at a lot of those um, more medical evidence articles too that were just fascinating. You know, doctors that strapped everybody up to EEGs and heart monitors and are watching all of these different things change as people de-escalate having Reiki. But what we did with all of that information is really look for things that were related specifically to staff in the medical setting uh, and how that may help reduce stress levels um, for people on shift. I'm looking forward to this initiative rolling out. Anything we can do to make their experience better is just so important. Is there anything else... Actually, too, with VR, trying to use VR with our patients to help with breathing techniques. So VR is the virtual reality, and it's excellent. Um, Jen and I both got to experience it with Cade, and um, it was really neat. And I think this is an opportunity for Jen and I to really get these new practitioners on BRT to try to utilize this with our patients boarding. So we can build more interest, get some more data, and really get that out there as a really great approach. As technology kids really like yeah. things to do these days. They like fun things. <laughs> You're also sharing your knowledge back to the startup that's helping us. I think it's a big deal. They're really taking time to listen because you guys really have s- such a, 
a rich wealth of knowledge behind you and just sharing that back. So other people across the country and, and, and this company is actually out of Canada across, you know, state lines and country lines to get this technology in ways that's going to be beneficial for this patient population. So thank you. Yeah. They helped us with our demonstration and really valued our our thoughts and feedback. So we really appreciated that too. So great working with them and Kate. Mm -hmm. That's amazing work. One of our last episodes, we talked about the Textured Health um, Hair Care Initiative. I know that's something differently that we just started doing here. Does anybody want to speak to that? Yeah, one of our um, behavioral health counselors on the BRT actually had started doing this when she worked on our inpatient psychiatric unit at, with great success. And we, in different areas of the hospital, different people had been doing kind of the same thing all on their own. You know, we'd run up to the CVS on the corner and get <laughs> the different things we needed. Self-care is such a basic human right, firstly, but sometimes... Some of that extra self-care, like, you know, let's have a spa day because you've been in this room for a few days and let's do something nice, you know, together. That can be such an incentive and such a boost to someone's well-being. You have to have the stuff, though, to do it, right? And so having different patients uh, with different hair and skincare needs really was just this whole thing that hadn't really been addressed in the way of supplies being available to us. Uh, and this wonderful textured hair care initiative was exactly what everyone needed. It is hospital-wide. It is all of the people, all of the patients, and you know, comprehensive ways to ask the questions about what people need, because I think that's kind of a stumbling block for people sometimes too. Uh, and then also how to access the things that are now on hand for people to use. So that's just another piece of advocacy, I think, that goes a really, really long way for mental health. Yeah, Sarah Wood, our big health counselor, she just has the best passion and drive for this type of initiative. And we couldn't be prouder of her working on this and really advocating for this need. It was just such a great initiative and I'm so excited to see her success and being able to collaborate with so many other passionate people in this related to this topic. It's been great. And for those listeners out there, if you haven't heard the Small Talk podcast on the Texture Hair Care Initiative, go back to our library. You will find it there. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. So thank you for mentioning it. Absolutely. Gosh, there's been so much work done here. And, you know, we talked about trying to make things pleasant for our patients and advocating for them while they're here with us. But I also know the two of you have done some amazing work for our staff. And I'd love to have, as we wrap up this podcast, talk about the work that you've done in this. I'm going to say it, the secret garden. garden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just in Boston form, the secret yes, garden. <laughs> So as I said before, we did that research project with Edie, yes. and that really started things for us. We actually jumped in with a grant proposal before that. Uh, and, you know, very kindly, we're told this is amazing, but let's get some some better grounding, which was appropriate. So we went back uh, to EVP and had a wonderful set of people there to help us with that. Our, our mentor and our reviewers, they were really wonderful uh, and extremely receptive to all of it. And so really helped us to facilitate that work. I think a, a big reason why Jen and I got into staff well-being is because I think in working in behavioral health, it's a really challenging field. And so when you you're working with emotions, feelings, behaviors of other people, 
consistently every shift. So when you leave work, you need to learn how to de-escalate from that crisis state or you're not going to be able to sleep because you're in that crisis mode and you're kind of staring at the wall all night. So you got to learn how to de-stimulate your body after a really hectic shift. And I think that's how Jen and I really got into integrative therapies. And that's how our passion really grew. And as we got into working in the non-psych settings and where we're recognizing these nurses that haven't had these experiences before, we're now having them. We were really, of course, there for the patient to support the patient, but we were also really supporting them. And we really got to learn about their needs and really hear what was hard for them and what where there were gaps and from all areas, because we were going to all different types of units and floors throughout the hospital. So, of course, everybody loves a good free coffee or half-off food, but Jen and I really recognized that as a Band-Aid, and we really wanted something that could really change people's mental health and learn skills that can actually help heal them so that, you know, this is actual long-term change, and it's not that instant gratification of, oh, great, I'm happy today, but I'm if I don't actually do the work and just rely on the free coffee, I'm still going to have those really challenging, frustrating days. So I think that's really how our passion really evolved over time. And we're very passionate about everybody's mental health because, of course, mental health is what our real passion is in. And it kind of coincides together and really complements each other well, integrative therapies and behavioral health. For sure. It's it's a master's in coping skills. And it's building resilience, for sure. So we are both getting our, our master's in different integrative therapies and holistic realms, uh, therapy and medicine, you know, as we're just going to keep attacking it from both sides. Right. And I think that, you know, for us moving from EBP and into the nurse science fellowship has been really helpful in data collection. And so we are seeing utilization that is exponentially growing every month. It is super encouraging because we have surveys in the space that people provide feedback on. Uh, and a free text area for suggestions for additions and things like that. Uh, and we get to do pop-up things in there with some of our fellowship time. Like we did some sound baths, which I think are the biggest hit so far. <laughs> and we did some Reiki circles. Uh, and one of our doctors at Children's does staff yoga from the space on Fridays uh, and virtually on Mondays. Uh, and we're working toward... Um, adding some more integrative therapies currently, such as yoga, and then in the future, chi and hopefully aromatherapy. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that can be done. And there are so many phenomenal clinicians at Children's that do all these things. And they want to give back to their peers and support their peers too. So we're really trying to formulate how that's going to look moving forward. But it's going to be really nice to have some things that are guided uh, and then have the space as it's quiet, low stimulation, relaxation, and self-reflection space that it is. So the people that just need to go there to quiet their minds and reset can still also do that. I think that the biggest points for us in creating the space, we're getting the space, firstly, because we know how challenging that is. The biggest things were, how do we build resilience? How do we teach people what resilience is. It's not being tough and sticking it out and taking everything on. That's not resilience. Resilience is experiencing those crisis states and how you return to center. That's resilience. And so how do we teach that in this space where people aren't actively being taught all the time, right? 
Uh, and so we have different areas for people to engage in different things. We have literature all over the room about implicit bias, about how to navigate grief, songwriting for depression. We have some songwriting books in there. We have, you know, different things that people can engage in, in, you know, whatever form is good for them. We've had nurses be like, well, I'm not doing yoga. And I'm like, I'm not either. Don't worry about that. You can do yoga over there. Or you can come sit on this lounger and watch this giant screen that is just full of nature and listen to the quiet music and you can relax. And you can do VR as well for some guided breath work if you're the kind of person that really needs that extra prompt to drop into your space. And believe me, everyone at work needs that extra prompt. So the visuals are really, really helpful to help you get to that space. Uh, We had one doctor who was like, can I live in there? You know, live in there, but our biggest goal is to change the culture around breaks. I think the biggest thing is that in the healthcare system and hospitals nationwide, I think everybody uh, sees breaks as, you know, maybe I'll get there. I'm too busy to get to a break. It's kind of our culture. It just kind of created whether it's what it's supposed to be or not. It's kind of known in the healthcare field, nurses either skip their breaks, miss their breaks, or they don't take their breaks and don't tell anybody because they're afraid of either mismanaging their time or not getting there. And I've done a lot of actual research on it rec- more recently on breaks, insufficient or sufficient breaks. And it's really important that we change this culture and that it, more than a break is needed, a restorative break is needed, especially in the work that we're doing. And I think that's our overall goal is really changing that culture. And it was kind of really exciting during um, Nurses Week. Um, We did a lot of advocating and uh, awareness of the little pop-up events that we were going to host for Nurses Week through our fellowship. And it was really exciting to see a lot of leadership there because I think that's where the change really will occur is if they are buying into it and they're supporting it they're going to be that role model to their staff. I think that's what's going to change culture. Exactly. I think every time we see leadership come through, we take the time to thank them for coming, you know, and really it's such a big deal because if your leaders are doing it, it's changing the narrative. Even if it's still hard to get off the unit to go take this time for yourself, people are now thinking, oh, I can just come on shift and say, Aaron, I want to go to the garden today for 20 minutes. Do you? Yes cool, I'm going to watch your patients and you're going to watch mine. And then you have a plan and that might fall by the wayside, but at least you started with a plan. And people, I will tell you, try really hard to make those plans stick. (laughs) So, you know, they work in the buddy system. Their leaders are helping advocate for better self-care, which leads to better resilience, which leads to better patient care. Uh, And so, you know, we really are really thankful for people taking the time to, to explore the space. I think we have like at least like oh, a, l- a little over 130 surveys right now just from starting our fellowship. And we still have seven more months of data collection. But every survey that we have collected from staff has shown a perceived uh, decrease in stress after utilizing this space, whether that is self-led yeah. or whether attending one of our pop-up sessions as a practitioner-led session. Um, which I think is fascinating and not one not one negative yeah. um increase and stress or remain the same it always improves which is excellent and we also use the board and the space to be a connection to other hospital services that people might need if they're coming to the space because they're having a hard time we want to make sure that the resource board as we call it is full right 
It has all of the cards for our clinicians for OCS, the Office of Clinician Support. It has contacts for human resources and occupational health should you need them. Uh, it has contacts to our, is it KGA, I believe, resource as well, and Grokker, yeah. And so all of these different things that people may be seeking out that they're just not necessarily sure they need at that moment. And then maybe, yeah, and then maybe seeing it, uh, you know, is helpful for them in thinking about what their next steps might be. Gwyneth, where is the space located? The Secret Garden is located on Hale 1, directly across from the chapel. Uh, and at the very end of the hallway are the doors that are going to be opening to the brand new outdoor Wishing Stone Garden. So it's going to be uh, more easy, I think, for people to locate as they start navigating their, their way out to the garden. And I do just want to mention that the Secret Garden, the respite space, is staff only. There are no patients, no parents allowed. It is only for staff and it is all inclusive, all staff, all positions, all areas. Uh, if you have an active BCH badge, you are welcome. In our research, we saw there are a lot of little things on different units, which is phenomenal because that should exist too. Uh, but sometimes people need to get off their unit and sometimes people need to get away from their space. And so we wanted to make sure that every single person from the front desk to our central supply to our ESD has an opportunity to take a break. Speaking of all-inclusive, we know that the space is only at the main campus, but our long-term goal is to Zoom and have that Zoom opportunities for anybody that can't leave the floor or who are out at satellites or working from home to really feel like they're a part of a community and that they are able to maybe do a chair yoga from their home or from the Waltham campus and Zoom into the teacher and the other um, colleagues from the main campus doing it as well. So um, we have had some experience with that with some of our pop-up sessions, which have been excellent. We've gotten great feedback. Still are trying to figure out how to do our sound bowls with the videoing from home. But the eyes not register on the sound. <laughs> but the yoga and different types of meditation and Reiki sessions, um, we've really been able to provide that to people from home and the satellites as well. And so that's our long-term goal so that to get some more consistent programming up for that. This has been an incredible hour of listening to all the work that you've done. I have one question. Do you ever sleep? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> every conversation we have with our wonderful colleagues, every single one of you included, we leave that conversation with more projects. <laughs> but <laughs> that is, well, we wouldn't want it any other way. There is yeah. there is a mountain of work to be done in there. There are more than enough people to help do it. So yeah, it's just balance those is important. So we do get our fair share of integrative therapies for ourselves. So we do really take the time for us when we do need it. But yeah, you know, we have to take care of ourselves in order to be there and be strong advocates and clinicians for our patients. Going on with that, stop the stigma and take care of yourself as well. Recognize, do a little yeah. self-reflection. Before we wrap up this episode, I have a question for you. What would you like your legacy to be? I think for my legacy, I guess, I want to make change nationwide with staff well-being. I really want people to take uh, staff well-being seriously. And I think in order for us to really advance in our behavioral health and our patient population and our all increases in our medical diagnosis and um, just all the influx of the, the, the hard work that we're going through, I really think the focus needs to take care of staff well-being so that they can do the best care. And 
I really want to change how we view behavioral health in the medical setting and get more funding behind it and get the accommodations that are really needed. Instead of really doing Band-Aids after Band-Aids, I really want a real solution that can be adopted and adapted to all settings. So staff will be in mental health. That's just my thing. <laughs> I love it. We do. Two things. If there was anything that my and or our legacy would be, it is related to both of those things. Because as I said earlier, you know, I think we have to change the way that we think about resilience and wellness. And I think that we need to really stop the stigma around different words and terminology that we use on ourselves. Burnout is real. It's okay to say the word. Trauma can be cumulative if you work in a hard environment. And I think we have to start talking about those things. And we have to talk about them openly. We also have to be very mindful of the energy that we bring into every conversation. And that is really hard to do sometimes. <laughs> so I think as long as we're all working toward emotional intelligence and trying to speak more openly about the things that we know we need to be better at, I think that we can do a good job. Well, that's just amazing. I just want to add something. Ever since, I don't know, Erin and Jen, since you guys teamed up together, you have been such a dynamic duo that I see you everywhere throughout the hospital doing this work. You're pushing your carts with your information sheets. You're, you're bringing, you know, special snacks around to people who need them the most for the employees, I mean. This whole time, every time I see the two of you, the both of you, have the biggest smile on your face. So it's obvious that you're doing the work that you were meant to do. And I honestly believe that you are building your legacy right now. So I want to thank you so oh. much. Thanks, Denise. <laughs> and I think that you're right, though. I have not felt as in my place in doing the right work as I have in the last few years doing this stuff. And for me, it all started with you and Kathy in the emergency room. And, you know, that was a really big uphill battle, but we did it. And look how different yeah. things are, right? There's still a lot of things to be done in a lot of areas and, you know, statewide and globally and all of that. But I always say we work in this box and we can't control what's outside of it usually. So if we can maintain a healthy relationship with what is inside this box, then we're doing okay. Mm -hmm. That is really important to remember when things get really hard. Because sometimes things get really hard. That's a great message. Yeah. You know, the best part of being on the small talk team is learning about the, our coworkers and all the amazing work that's getting done at Children's. Like, we just have work with incredible people. And we're very blessed, you know? It's true. And that's why we get to make such rich care plans for kids, because we have all these different people and all these different services and all these different people that focus on different pieces of those services, you know, yeah. and that's why kids get really patient focused, yeah, specifically to them focused care. And yeah. I think that's really a big and important well, it, part. The work that's been done is just like, you just think we have a, a ways to go. Obviously, locally, we are lucky, as you guys have pointed out. And Nationally, we've come a long way from people's perceptions of people experiencing behavioral health crises. My staff, when we get overwhelmed, I say, you got a pickaxe in your hand, and every day you're coming to work, and you're picking away, chipping away. You guys have had a couple pickaxes in both hands, one for staff, one for patients, you know, strong work. Thank you guys for being um, on our show. Thanks for letting us. Yes. You guys are rock stars.
This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.